Health Studies and MEI have signed an MOU uh, sometime a few years back. And through the MOU, we have organized a number of events and conferences and publications, uh, etc. And basically, this is a continuation of that uh, uh, MOU with, uh, with the Gulf Studies. Dr. Mahjou, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Abdullah. Uh, good morning, everybody, and um, let me welcome you all to this um, event. And uh, on behalf of uh, Gulf Study uh, Community in, at Qatar University, I welcome you, and I do thank you for accepting our invitation to join us um, uh, to discuss a very important uh, issue in a, a crucial time. Um, uh, as Abdullah uh, has mentioned, uh, Gulf Study Center has a uh, strong relations with the uh, uh, Middle East Institute and uh, this was uh, for years now and we are proud of this uh, relationship and partnership um, and we are we're looking forward to build on on this uh, history of the relationship um, um, there is no doubt that that, that uh, the world is 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 um, uh, facing a serious challenge in the previous years uh, we used to discuss the uh, you know, world order, uh, looking at changing in politics, changing on balance of power, changing on uh, political, uh, maybe um, dy uh, economic dynamics. Um, in the last few months, uh, important questions actually pop into faces, uh, a lot of faces in the world and, and, and the leaders' faces over the globe. Uh, and put the questions about, you know, uh, how much actually politics, uh, how much human uh, matters when it comes to politics, how much human are important when it comes to uh, collaboration uh, in international arena. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Corona uh, is pushing the world uh, and the question, the credibility of all of this literature about collaboration, uh, about the interest of a human being, about the security of a human being, all of this now um, are questioned. It's, it's important to discuss this actually um, uh, in the context of you know, uh, what's happening between Gulf and Asia in particular, uh, and looking at what's happening in, in, in the world. Uh, as Abdullah said, we have uh, distinguished uh, speakers, uh, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm very pleased and it gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce my colleague, big brother, Professor Anush Ahtishami, um, it's good to see him again, uh, and um, uh, Anush is, you know, well-known well scholar, uh, professor uh, uh, in, in when it comes to Middle East, uh, Gulf, uh, Iran. So no one can avoid um, his articles or uh, interventions or books. So he has no choice but to see Anush's writings. So I'm I'm proud of having you know uh, this opportunity to uh, you know, have my name with, with his name on two boxes uh, in my uh, academic career. So um, Anush, as Abdullah said, you have 15 minutes. The floor is yours and um, uh, Thank you very much, Masisha. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, everyone um, from our respective camps. Uh, it, it's, it's wonderful to be invited to speak at this conference and, and open discussion, as it were. And thank you, Masisha, for your very warm words as well. I look forward to learning from other panelists uh, myself. So I'll try and keep this exactly to time as I can. And my brief is to provide an overview. So what I've decided to do is 
take us away from the immediacy of tensions arising from COVID-19. I'll touch on that towards the end, but begin by providing a kind of a, a framework, a context as to why we're talking about Gulf Asia uh, in the 21st century. And I will do this, Mahju, by looking at four key um, contextual parameters. The first one is the notion of systemic shift, which you yourselves identified um, in, in, the, um, in the briefing. Um, and I must say in passing that it's wonderful to see MEI and Gulf Studies cooperate in this fashion because it's making these links that provides the space for the rest of us to reflect on the issues which are, which are being raised uh, and developed as we go forward. So the partnership may long prosper and hopefully include the rest of us as well as you guys go forward. In many ways, this partnership is itself is symbolic of the Gulf Asia relations as it emerges. You touched on the, the importance of humans, if you like, and here we are underlining that in terms of the relationships which are being developed. You know, 10 years ago, Qatar would not have any interest in developing an interest, a, a perspective on the rest of Asia. Um, and, and Singapore had very little inclination to zoom in on this region. It's unfortunate that we still refer to this region in the Middle East. It's a very un-Asian way of looking at the world, but nevertheless, here we are, that concept has stuck. So this relationship is itself symbolic of what has been going on over the last, let's say 20 years. So the starting point is this notion of systemic shift. What do we mean by this? There are four or five ways of understanding this, this process. The first is this dramatic shift in the weight of the world economy from one place to another. Second is the rapid growth in GDP or PPP, the purchasing parity model, if you like, taking place for the first time beyond the Atlantic zone of Europe and North America. Thirdly, which reinforces the second point, is the rise in economic power of key non-Western economies. At one level, the notion of BRICS is an indica indication of this kind of level of change, the rise of these other economic powers in a non-Western context. Um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa uh, have put together the BRICS. None of, not all of them are prosperous economies, but they are rising non-Western economies. Fourthly, domination in manufacturing uh, of others outside of the Western world is another key indicator of this. And I have lots of data about this that I can share with you in Q&A if need be. Uh, and finally, dramatic shifts in trade patterns. These, these five kind of indicators will show you how dramatically over the last 20 years, the weight of the global economy has moved away from the Atlantic, which is where it was mid 20th century, if you want to pinpoint it, to now being at the center of Iran. So that is how far the weight of the global economy shifted eastwards 
if you measure it. Um, and there is a, there is a Professor uh, uh, Kwa, I think he's now in, 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 in Korea, then, then we show you exactly where the epicenter of the world economy is. And as we've been talking about systemic shift, over the period of being, we've been looking at this process of transition, the epicenter has moved from western edges of Turkey to Iran. And this is over the last decade and a half. So this is how quickly systemic shift has been taking place. So this is not a passing phase. This is a process of mag mag magnitudinal change at the global level. So that's the first parameter around which we can understand Gulf Asia relations. The second is the relationship between globalization and global regions. Um, we all, we have our general understandings of globalization and in many ways, COVID-19's impact on the world is itself indicative of how globalized the world has become. There are, the, the two factors in that are the intensification of integration and also massive interconnectedness across the world. However, it's a false assumption to say that globalization is actually creating level playing field. It isn't. Globalization in some ways actually intensifies hierarchies. And it is because of that that regions have become important in the global system. That isolated countries cannot protect themselves against this wave of globalization. So while they're integrating, while they're interconnecting, they actually need other barriers. It's in that context that we in Britain are now mourning the prospect of leaving the European Union because for some of us, for the majority of us in fact, is gonna leave Britain vulnerable to these forces of change that it won't have the protective barriers that, that regionalism provides. Regionalism is sometimes defined by geography, but as the BRICS example shows, it's not just geography that allows global regions to emerge and work more closely together. So the other side of globalization is regionalization, and that is significant. In Singapore, of course, ASEAN is important. Sadly, in the Gulf, the GCC has not lived up to what it could and should be doing in the context of globalization. So what regionalism has done is it has accelerated globalization as well, because regions can now speak for countries, and as a consequence, regions interact much more rapidly with each other than with individual countries. And as a consequence, the process of integration has deepened as well, to a point where now global regions are dominating the international economic system. So we have first systemic shift, then we have this intense relationship between globalization and global regions. The third, coming to the focus of our, our, our uh, discussion, is what I coined back in Doha, might you may remember, when you invited me to speak there, I think it was many 2000s ago, 2014-15, <laughs> the, the idea of Asianization of the Middle East. Um, and, and some in the audience raised the question, but we are in Asia already. What are you talking about? In fact, what I've been talking about is the way in which the West Asia has now woken up 
to its Asian heritage. And it is this process of systemic shift and globalization, which is facilitating Asianization of the Middle East. Uh, before I get into that though, let me just also put on the table in the context of the third element, which is the Asianization of the Middle East, is if we look at the world in terms of global regions, then the argument can be made that actually Asia is now the world's largest global region. Um, and Asia is a dynamic system, but it is not just one region. Asia is a complex of sub-regions. West Asia, where we're talking about, is one of them. South Asia, Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and Central, and Central Asia and the Caucasus. These are the composites of Asia as a region. And in fact, when you look at interactions between them, partly thanks to the role of the major Asian economies, these relationships are becoming deeper and more integrated. In some ways, therefore, globalization is accelerating in the context of Asianization of the Middle East. What Asianization means is rediscovery of Asia by the Middle East, basically, yeah? For, remember, a century and more, much, if not all of the Middle East, looked westwards. From culture, to economy, to defense, to policy, politics, everything was determined and at some point, indeed, fixed by the Western powers. You know, the West Asian countries had no locus to look at Asia. Asia was isolated, India was weak, China was inward looking, Japan was too far away, Korea was not what it is now. There was not much apart from culture and religion that would tie West Asia to parts of Asia, for example, South Asia and Southeast Asia. That has dramatically changed thanks to systemic shift and globalization. But what we have also in this context of Asianization is there is like globalization, there is uneven Asianization of the Middle East. And the unevenness is characterized by the role that the Gulf plays in leading the region's Asianization. Hence why we are looking again at Gulf-Asia relations. And finally, in this context, it has been China which has led Asianizations. The process started with Japan in the 1960s. In fact, the first oil deal that was made by East Asian countries was Japan in 1958 in Kuwait. So Japan has been here for an awfully long time and Japan continues to maintain close and cordial relations with virtually all of the Gulf states. But Japan's mantle was then taken up by the so-called newly industrializing countries of which Singapore is one, South Korea another, and so on. But as Japan's economy flattened in the 1990s, and as the NICs moved on to greener pastures, it was China which underpinned this slow convergence between West Asia and East Asia. And China has accelerated the pace of change in ways that Japan and the NICs could never match. And it's for that reason that we see China now as the driver of Asianization of, of the Middle East. In fact, um, just before COVID-19, data showed that China is now the major trading partner of at least 10 Middle Eastern countries. With Neef Koresh, uh, I've just pub published a book that says how China has changed the Middle East. The footprint is dramatic and important, but China is, is one actor amongst many others.
So what are the, what is the essence? What are the drivers of the Gulf's Asianization? Again, there is a lot of data that I can refer to, but for now, Maju, just briefly, first of all, energy. Energy patterns have shifted eastwards. Europe is stabilized, is, is, is uh, hydrocarbons imports. It is moving to alternative technologies. Its economies are not growing as fast. The United States is looking to become self-sufficient in hydrocarbons as well. And fracking has allowed the US and North America in general, including Canada, to bring much more of its own hydrocarbons into the market. While Asia, not only demand has been rising, but supply has also been fixed. While Central Asia offers one alternative, extraction from Central Asia never ever matches the costs in Saudi Arabia, for example. So energy, hunger for energy in Asia, and the need for exports of that energy in, in, in West Asia has pushed the two parties uh, together. And the cost of energy uh, is deepening systemic shift because that money which used to go globally is now circulating around Asia. Another reason why I talk about Asia being a global region in its own right. In its own right. Uh, the rise in energy demand that started in the 1990s in places like China and India has accelerated and is likely to continue to grow right up to the 2050s. So irrespective of any medium-term solution to global warming, hydrocarbons needs of major Asian countries are not going to be going away. If anything, they're going to rise. And post-COVID-19, we will see a stabilization of that pattern of relations. In this context, I think it's important to refer to some of the key actors now, moving rapidly on. While we look at Asianization in terms of China's rapid rise, there's a danger that we overlook the importance of India. When you look at the GCC countries in particular, actually the cultural, the people to people, and also historic links between GCC countries and India cannot be underestimated. And India in many ways is this sleeping giant, which is beginning to discover its own Indian Ocean interests and is increasingly conscious of the influence of Indian heritage populations of the GCC countries. So it's much easier for India to mobilize these nodes of relations, the cultural people-to-people -people relations that many other Asian countries, including China. Uh, that is, uh, I think, important to note, the cultural ties. Um, but further to energy, however, we're beginning to see a massive rise in broader trade and investment. So Asian companies are building nuclear power stations, they're building uh, infrastructure, they're building uh, ports, Gulf countries are investing in infrastructure, in refineries, in chemical plants in Asia. These relationships are underpinned by energy, but they're going well above energy. So that integration is, is now multifaceted. And we are looking at India, Japan, China, Korea, and also smaller countries who are pushing to, to accelerate this, this process of convergence. Now, quickly, we have to take account of COVID-19 effect, right? It has, in many ways, damaged China-MENA relations. 
There is no question about it. At the same time, China's response in terms of soft diplomacy has compensated for some of this perception damage that China had suffered. But I don't think China will be able to overcome the negative impact of this that quickly. From Iran to Iraq to Oman to other countries, there is this concern that, that this disease, which has not affected so much of the world, is, 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 is not handled uh, properly. Also, I think in the context of looking forward, we need to be mindful of three important factors. Major power competition, Asian power competition, and Gulf competition. Major power competition these days is now reduced to this notion of relative decline of the United States versus relative rise of, of China. We can talk about that, I'm sure, uh, in discussion. But the second equally important is Asian power competition. Uh, this skirmishes um, you know, on the roof of Asia between China and India uh, earlier is a mere example of the brewing tensions between this group of so-called Asian democracies, India, South Korea, and Japan in particular, and China, where these parties are beginning to form their own coalition that wants to contain the rise of China. I think the Gulf states need to be mindful of that. And, and, and related to that, of course, is China's growing pre naval presence in the Indian Ocean, in Djibouti, in Doum, in, in, in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, and increasingly likely in Iran as well. That makes India very concerned about this. And last but not least, competition in the Gulf itself. It's not just about the tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, it's also about tensions within the GCC itself. These tensions disable the ability of regions to converge together in response to these massive global challenges which are ahead of us, and COVID-19 is just one example of that. I should stop there because I think I've just about done my time. Thank you. Thank you, Anujan. Thank you so much. Abdullah, over to you. Mahjoub, and thank you, uh, Professor Anush, uh, for uh, this uh, quick overview. Um, uh, I'm sure that we have lots of questions that uh, the audience and ourselves would want to ask. And if anybody has a question, please make sure that um, you can either raise your hand um, uh, uh, in the Q&A session or uh, write it down in the, uh, in the chat, uh, please. Um, now, um, as Anush has been saying that, you know, the major player in this relationship is obviously China. And uh, I think this takes us nicely to the next speaker, uh, Professor Pingbing, who's the Deputy Director of the Institute of Arab and Islamic F uh, Studies at Beijing University, uh, who will speak to us about the role in China uh, in this kind of uh, in the, uh, relations with the Gulf and the Middle East. Pingbing, the okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Abdullah, and also uh, great, you know, to meet with old friends like, you know, Dr. Mahkoub also. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, Professor Anush has uh, set up a very a comprehensive framework to understand this Asian GCC relations. I want to present the Chinese viewpoint on this. Uh, there are two uh, 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 concepts uh, to define Chinese political and economic 
uh, viewpoints on the world. So for political, uh, we think we have the concept of new pattern of international relations. It means we focus on a partnership instead of a, a, a alliance. And for economic uh, relations, we have the uh, concept of the uh, community of shared future for humankind. So it means, you know, economically and socially, we think, you know, all these countries should be interconnected with each other. Uh, we, we have the shared future, you know. Uh, so based on these two concepts, uh, there is a uh, initiative of BRI, uh, we call it a Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, I think, you know, we just uh, uh, finished this uh, ninth ministerial uh, meeting of China-Arab uh, States Cooperation Forum. And in that forum, uh, on the uh, Oman Declaration, uh, Amman Declaration, sorry, uh, the two sides, you know, I mean, uh, highlights, we should jointly, uh, uh, jointly, you know, I mean, um, uh, exert efforts to build uh, BRI, Belt and Road. So, you know, this is very clear uh, framework for uh, bilateral corporations. And uh, after the uh, pandemic, you know, broke up, I think China present a new uh, uh, concept based on BRI. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, a community of shared health for humankind. So we can see that China sent the uh, medical teams to uh, Saudi Arabia, to Kuwait. China has very strong cooperation with the UAE on developing vaccine and also to have the testing of the AI to detect, you know, all these infected cases. Uh, and we had cooperation with the, both Saudi Arabia and UAE on um, uh, providing these test kits and also to uh, build, you know, these uh, uh, laboratories to do the test. And for Qatar, you know, there are special cooperation that uh, Qatar uses, you know, uh, Qatar Airways, you know, to transport all the necessary stuff in uh, February and Mar March, when all the flights stopped, you know, Qatar Airways, you know, helped to transport. So this is, this was very important, you know, I mean, uh, Chinese has very deep uh, impression over that. And even Peking University and Qatar University have bilateral cooperation on fighting uh, COVID-19 because, you know, uh, Peking University has very good experience and the research team on, the, uh, on this uh, issue. So, I mean, this is based on, you know, all this BRI and China-Arab uh, cooperation uh, uh, platform. Uh, and there, uh, uh, we, we have mentioned BRI, we have mentioned China-Arab States Cooperation Forum as two very important platforms. And there, one more thing is uh, the bilateral uh, strategic partnership network. Uh, China has comprehensive strategic partnership with uh, each of Saudi Arabia and UAE. And with Qatar, with Oman, uh, uh, we have you no know, strategic partnership. So this is also in you know, a very important platform because you know, it's bilateral. It's not, you know, I mean, a collective uh, cooperation platform. So for example, you know, I mean, uh, uh, China, uh, Saudi Arabia, we have established the high level joint bilateral cooperation committee. So in Saudi side is the Crown Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, and in China is always, you know, a deputy premier in charge of that. And China, uh, uh, UAE has also established a joint committee on the level of foreign minister. And certainly, you know, on the leadership level, you know, we have very good interaction. And China-Qatar also has an exchange mechanism on the foreign minister level. 
so I think, you know, I mean, this uh, bilateral strategic partnership is also a very important platform. Uh, it's not, you know, I mean, uh, replaced by the other collective uh, platforms. And then I have to mention one thing is China GCC strategic dialogue. It's very important because, you know, based on this dialogue, the two parties to exchange ideas and also to establish the free trade zone. China GCC, you know, uh, I want to sign China GCC FTA. Although the two parties have, you know, negotiated for nearly, you know, more than one decade, but uh, finally, because of different factors, we didn't achieve the, the real, you know, I mean, uh, positive result. It's a great pity. Uh, we cannot blame any side, but we should think, you know, a way out of the current, you know, I mean, uh, uh, stalemate and to find find a good uh, future for this. And also, we should continue the strategic China GCC dialogue. It has, you know, I mean, uh, suspended for uh, many years. Uh, so this mechanism, although we mentioned, uh, as Professor Anush has uh, discussed, China GCC cooperation maybe is the most important part of the China-MENA relations. In the, at least in economic side, but China GCC strategic dialogue has been suspended. So this is very interesting. These two points you know, don't match each other. So there must be something wrong. You know? We should figure out what happened. Uh, maybe you know GCC itself has some problem. Uh, uh, we can see all this. You know, I mean, the blockade of Qatar <clears throat> and also competition among GCC countries, or we can see you know some. Uh, problems, either it's border, as is, you know, I mean, uh, something else uh, have been a uh, uh, barrier for cooperation among GCC countries themselves. Uh, maybe this is a main uh, problem for us to continue the China GCC strategic dialogue. But also, I think in both, in each of the GCC countries and also in China, there must be some, uh, you know, I mean, uh, interest groups like, you know, I mean, uh, petrochemical companies, the giant crude, you know, oil companies, or some other companies want to, you know, achieve their own interest. Uh, so this maybe doesn't, you know, in line with China GCC strategic cooperation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, uh, one more point I want to mention that in this just, you know, uh, last uh, uh, ministerial uh, meeting between China and Arab countries in uh, online, it's, it's supposed to be held in uh, Amman in uh, Jordan, you know, uh, which was, you know, I mean, uh, in rotation between Beijing and Arab capitals. Uh, and China and Arab sides have agreed that we should increase, you know, lift the level of bilateral meetings from ministry level to summit. Uh, it's very clear, there's a paragraph that we should have a China-Arab summit and which, you know, would be uh, hosted by Saudi Arabia for the first round. So this is a, a very important one because we have only summit, you know, maybe with uh, uh, African countries. So this is second group of countries, you know, China, Arab countries. Uh, I think it's not only symbolic, but uh, uh, sometimes we joke that even the Arab summit is not so easy, right? So to have a China-Arab summit, you know, it really, really means something, I think. Uh, so, you know, we have very high expectations, especially this year is the 30th anniversary of China-Saudi formal relations. It was uh, established in 1990. And please keep in mind that Saudi Arabia is the last Arab country which established formal relations with China. The first was Egypt and the last is Saudi Arabia. So it is also very symbolic that the last one which you know, established relations with China want to host the first China-Arab summit. <laughs> so this shows you know, how China-GCC relations developed so fast. And I want to mention some uh, other, uh, maybe 
points, you know, could be problems between China and uh, GCC cooperation. Uh, first, I think the supply chain issue. Uh, the pandemic you know, has shown the risk of you know, a highly dependence on one country as the main supply supplier of uh, products. So I think you know, uh, for GCC countries, the same as in Jordan, as in uh, Egypt, as in many Arab countries, maybe in the globe, that they want to diversify the resource of supply. But to where? On a regional level, regional cooperation, or to US or European countries, but the same dependence on uh, the other suppliers, right? So it doesn't solve the problem. To shift away from China to other European or US doesn't mean you, you have a solution. So supply chain is a big issue, but uh, not easy to have a solution. Uh, and uh, uh, second issue is oil. Oil price will be low, even before the pandemic. So it's a challenge to GCC countries as a, a key uh, oil supplier. If they don't have enough uh, financial capability, how could they meet the demand of the people? We can see especially the youth. Uh, last year, we see the 19, uh, 2019 protest movements in uh, uh, Lebanon, in Iraq, in uh, Sudan. You know, it's not only political system, not only governance. People want better life. Young people want better service. They want to have hope. So if you know there are less financial capability, but a higher expectation of the youth, uh, this could create a totally new situation, protests, unrest. This can hurt any cooperation between GCC and other countries, especially with us, right? And uh, also, I think China has signed the first phase of uh, trade agreement with the US, and we promised to buy at least the 20 billion US dollar of energy products from the US. This is a totally new. So, I mean, we don't consume a lot of uh, new energy, we have the nearly the you know the stable demand. So from where we can uh, buy this extra uh, oil and gas from U.S., we have to reduce something else uh, from somewhere else. Where? So that's a big question. Can we reduce our uh, su uh, supply from Russia? We have you know nearly zero supply from Iran. So where we re we reduce you know our other supply. So I think this is a big question. I think this question mark is in the mind of many GCC people, 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 you know. And then the third issue I want to mention, China-US relations, as Professor Anush mentioned, but for us, we are among it, right? We're inside. So US, it's very clear, you know, has asked some GCC countries to reduce their cooperation with China. So this means that uh, maybe we, we, uh, the, we will help, we should help the GCC countries to not take side, because you know this means they benefit more. If they take side, they will lose because their cooperation with China is not only you know uh, uh, for uh, for the benefit of China, uh, either 5G or energy or uh, supply. You know the GCC countries benefit also a lot, even the uh, the uh, defense technology, uh, because they can get not only the product but also some technology. So. If US have more pressure on GCC countries, what will happen? We don't know. And then the last issue I want to mention is, you know, the, the, the uncertainty of the relations between Iran and the other Gulf countries. Uh, maybe Iran and the US. Uh, the, uh, pos the possible uh, uh, military confrontation uh, could create a totally new situation in the region. That's a big worry, although uh, it seems that uh, Trump doesn't want to be um, involved in a new war but the accidental military confrontation in the region, especially, you know, we have seen twice, right? 
the shooting down of the drone uh, last uh, 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 last year, June, and uh, the uh, killing of uh, uh, Qasim Soleimani has created two possible uh, opportunities, uh, uh, two possible, you know, I mean, uh, um, uh, accidental wars between the Iran and the uh, and, uh, U.S. So I think that could be, you know, the largest uncertainty in this in this region. And then maybe China-India cooperation, because India has shut down many uh, Chinese uh, uh, APP uh, in the Indian market, which, you know, really, really oh, uh, make Chinese companies lose a lot, like uh, TikTok. Certainly, we, we are going to with the same thing in the U.S. So, uh, you know, to have this, you know, I mean, APP, there's a huge investment. Uh, and uh, India and U.S. market doesn't have any uh, alternative. They have nothing to replace. So what will happen? And uh, if the uh, TikTok is uh, uh, blocked in U.S. and India, would Chinese companies invest more in GCC uh, to have some kind of compensa compensation, maybe new market, I mean. So it's opportunity, actually, although it's a competition between uh, China. But... I think GCC countries doesn't want this competition would be brought into their territory, I think. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Ping Bing. That is a very insightful uh, and, and, and uh, uh, brief, if you like, uh, discussion about China's role uh, and policies towards the region and what can come out of it uh, as well, and the potential uh, and the challenges that it face. Um, we will move to the next speaker, and Dr. Mahjoub, uh, please. Uh. Um, thank you, Dr. Bank. Um, I mean, uh, we, uh, I think we had this view from uh, uh, China. Dr. Sharif al-Adwani will, maybe will shed light on view from the Gulf side. Dr. Sharif al-Adwani, who's in the, Gulf Study Center at the American University in Kuwait. Tori Sharifa, floor of yours. Okay, great. Um, hi, everybody. Um, it's great to be here with you all, and I just want to extend my thanks to our generous host for their kind invitation. Uh, thank you to the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore and to the Gulf Study Center at, at Qatar University. My talk today is about facing forward in our GCC relations with South Korea. I'll first, oops, I think I started at the end. Our first, or I will first offer a short overview of the kinds of embedded relations, interactions, and agreements between GCC countries and South Korea. I'll then highlight three important areas of relations between GCC states and South Korea, oil trade, digitization, and security that may require understanding, action, and or reconsideration in our attempts to face forward in a world full of new obstacles and tensions. It's difficult to understate the importance of South Korea's relations with GCC countries. Particularly in the last decade, the last 10 years have seen a huge increase in trade volume between South Korea and GCC countries. GCC states' total exports of oil and other goods may be as high as 18 or 19% with Kuwait and Qatar, and around 10 or 11% with Saudi Arabia and Oman in the first quarter of 2020. Saudi Arabia is South Korea's top oil supplier, boosted to new heights after 2019 sanctions against Iran. On the multilateral GCC level, negotiations over a free trade agreement have been underway since 2009. 
in many areas, bilateral agreements ex have exponentially increased, mostly to achieve the various GCC Vision 20XX goals. Here's just a small sample of the areas of cooperation between South Korea and GCC states. Relations are warm between the GCC countries and South Korea on the bilateral level. COVID-19 has presented an exogenous shock to the global system. While there have been discussions on the primary consequences and the shorter term responses to the virus, such as lockdowns, the closure of airports, and the health, well-being, and safety of denizens, other secondary and or long-term consequences should also be taken into consideration. I'll start with the oil trade. Despite recent global recession of markets, the dollar has remained strong. Important for us because oil is priced in dollars. A relatively strong dollar compared to other currencies means that oil is expensive for others and thus oil price will have to decrease. The South Korean won, however, is predicted to strengthen, which for our purposes can mean that Korea is able to afford oil at higher prices. But just because South Korea may more easily afford our oil exports, it does not mean that there is demand. Korean demand for oil in our region with respect to crude oil share has hit its lowest point in three decades. However, Korean economists predict that the percent of crude oil share from our region to South Korea will restabilize by the second half of 2020 due to the US's decreased crude production and due to Korea's return to semi-normalcy. But let's talk about price again. There are other impacts to the price of oil beyond currency value. Overall global demand has plummeted as a result of COVID-19 and thus has the price of oil. The 2020 Saudi-Russia oil price war in March and April further pushed down prices. For now, the oil price war has been suspended. Russia and OPEC states have agreed to reduce oil production until the end of this month, which may increase oil price. Now let's go back to demand. The GCC countries are also aware that in the long term, global demand for oil is on an overall decreasing trajectory. Whatever short term and medium term plans are in place for the oil trade, we must also take into consideration longer term decreased demand and the need for diversification. In some, at least with South Korea, GCC states will see a normalization of trade levels and potentially some small overall increase in price by the end of this year. Important for us is that we ensure that there are few disruptions in this vital supply chain and that we have plans in place to decrease overall oil dependence. Let's move on to digitization. So I'm gonna quickly remind you of some of the issue areas where there are bilateral agreements and MOUs between GCC countries and South Korea, right? So I'm gonna assume that these agreements still remain high on the medium term agendas and as such, Perhaps the most pragmatic approach to beginning or continuing these agreements is to do so virtually. Construction plans may be exchanged through secure email systems. Technical knowledge in multiple issue areas may be transferred virtually. If needed, surveys or simulations may be run with the appropriate kinds of software and equipment. In order to follow this path, GCC countries should have public sectors with people that are computer literate in order to exchange and provide deliverables. Yet, a quick litmus test of checking e-government effectiveness across GCC countries and their public sectors indicates that there's a wide variation here. Many areas are not ready for digital transformation. So in sum, 
GCC states need to begin their digital transformations through computer literacy training now in both public and private sectors in order to follow up with many international and domestic plans. The last issue is about security. So under COVID-19, the US-China rivalry or Cold War, the recent tensions in Ladakh between India and China, and China's recent posturing in the East China Sea to the discomfort of Japan all complicate long-term security planning for GCC countries with large and medium powers. South Korea is in the middle of the US-China Cold War. Both are top trading partners with South Korea. A US ally, South Korea has learned through some tough lessons that it cannot afford to ignore and it cannot afford to indulge the American regime. So neither this nor that. As such, Korea has taken steps recently to stay diplomatically friendly to both sides. What this means for GCC countries is that bilateral and multilateral agreements with South Korea on security issues may move forward with less attention from these distracted powers relative to other times. As such, there may be increased urgency in gaining ground on these GCC South Korea security arrangements. Multilaterally, of course, there are many common issues among GCC states where South Korea may serve as useful partners. GCC countries, however, may have a deficit of will to move forward on security-related items multilaterally. But bilateral security agreements have been conducted with South Korea and will probably continue to so do. These bilateral agreements, however, tend to focus on the more classic ideas of state-level security, borders, weapons. The exogenous impact of the coronavirus, however, should encourage us to look beyond these classic realist ideas of security. Dr. Abdullah Aboud eloquently discussed the consideration of human security in a talk he gave last month. One aspect of human security, health security, has already seen cooperation with South Korea's test kit diplomacy with GCC states. Agreements and MOUs on health information, technology, infrastructure, and even insurance have been conducted between GCC countries and South Korea. The concept of security may be further expanded by considering other harmful exogenous shocks, such as threats and attacks to, or breakdown of online networks and various software. Preparedness for this requires a strong cybersecurity sector. For many GCC states, that sector is not as strong as we may wish. At the most basic level, we need to, one, be able to collect data and maintain integrity of the information, and two, be able to protect that data and information. Partnerships with South Korea may allow us to build and strengthen this sector without undue influence from larger powers. In fact, it's very likely that now is a time of increased demand by GCC countries for better, new, and more technology and software, and South Korea may be able to step in to address that demand. In sum, despite tensions between large and middle powers, security partnerships with South Korea may move forward these partnerships are and should continue to develop beyond classic security approaches to include both human security and cybersecurity. Thank you. Abdullah, floor is yours. Thank you, Dr. Sharifa, so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sharifa. That is uh, 
very uh, interesting. You really widened the, the discussions uh, uh, a lot more and included other players in this uh, relationship. And that is not just, uh, not just China. And uh, thank you. Appreciate that, uh, Dr. Sharifa. Um, I think uh, we want to widen this discussion uh, a bit more. Uh, and if we may, uh, we're going to have the next speaker, and that's Dr. Lee Chin Sim uh, from Zaid University, who is going to also talk about other players uh, in the Asian uh, Gulf relations. Dr. Uh, uh, Li Chin, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Abdullah, for the invitation, and thank you, uh, Dr. Majub, as well, for uh, co-hosting the session. Um, my brief today is to talk about uh, the Gulf relations with um, the ASEAN, uh, the ASEAN countries. Uh, clearly, I'm not going to go through each of the ten, uh, you know, countries, but I'm just going to give you a general overview of the areas of cooperation. Uh, between the GCC and ASEAN countries, as well as to suggest some new areas for cooperation um, at the end. So generally, there are about four uh, areas of cooperation that we have seen uh, between uh, GCC and ASEAN. Uh, I will start with the uh, counterterrorism. Uh, both parties uh, obviously have a common interest in uh, counterterrorism. Uh, security, as Sharifa has, has mentioned, uh, with, with, which is uh, partly what South Korea helps them with. Uh, but in this case, in, in ASEAN countries, they have also faced a lot of ISIS-related uh, kind of uh, terrorist threats. So uh, recently, even in the past three years, uh, you've had um, attacks in uh, Marawi and the Philippines, for example. Uh, you've had uh, ISIS-inspired attacks in Surabaya. Um, so, you know, there is still quite a lot of um, extremist uh, attacks in ASEAN. And uh, so they share this uh, common vision uh, with the Gulf states to try to uh, limit uh, uh, extremist activities where they occur. Now, one uh, uh, instance of cooperation, a concrete one, was when the uh, Center for International Peace uh, was set up by uh, Saudi Arabia and KL in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in 2017, following the visit of King Salman. Uh, this was partly to address uh, counter-terrorist um, interests between both states. Uh, unfortunately, it's been merged, it's been shut down and merged uh, into uh, the Ministry of Defense in Malaysia, um, but this is due to internal uh, Malaysian politics and it does not reflect on the wider uh, GCC uh, ASEAN kind of uh, cooperation in counterterrorism. So that's the first aspect I would like to mention. The second area of relations, uh, which is something uh, which uh, Dr. Anush has mentioned in his overview, is of course uh, energy trade. Uh, the energy trade is what is the key uh, element that binds the Gulf and the ASEAN countries. Uh, it may be surprising to some of you to know that despite having um, oil-rich uh, countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, actually ASEAN as a whole unit, uh, they, are actually, uh, they are actually net oil importers. Um, most of that oil which they get uh, are from the GCC states, in particular from Saudi Arabia and from the UAE. 
Uh, why are they net oil importers, ASEAN as a whole? Well, um, there is dwindling reserves in uh, Indonesia and Malaysia in particular. And of course, there's very high demand uh, among the growing uh, ASEAN states for oil, particularly in uh, transportation um, and petrochemicals. So yes, uh, Brunei is still a net oil exporter, but on the whole, ASEAN is a net oil importer. So that's why you know, that lubricates the relations uh, with the Gulf states. Now, um, LNG imports is a really interesting story because uh, it seems that uh, with LNG imports, and there's quite a lot of LNG uh, export and import facilities in ASEAN, that this opens the door for uh, Qatar's uh, LNG exports to the region. And yes, Qatar does uh, export LNG here, um, but the amount of LNG that ASEAN imports from the GCC is really, really small. I mean, it's a $2 billion uh, market uh, for LNG imports from the Gulf compared to a 40 billion uh, oil and petroleum uh, market from the Gulf to ASEAN. So that's, uh, you know, to give you a sense of the scale of the difference between oil and uh, LNG imports. Um, but nevertheless, I think that what's quite important to note that um, the one thing that prevents further relations in hydrocarbon exchange is actually the fact that ASEAN depends a lot on coal. Right. And for the foreseeable future, coal is still going to generate um, a lot of the electricity mix. Uh, currently, ASEAN, I think, relies on coal for almost 45% of its electricity mix. And going forward into, say, 2030 or 2040, this is still expected to grow to over 50%. So the high reliance on coal because it's cheap and indigenous, you know, is going to um, you know, uh, be an obstacle to more LNG uptake, for example. Uh, obviously, in terms of energy, just to uh, give you a bit more information, uh, the majority of investments are in the energy-related field, uh, particularly investments from the Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the UAE, into uh, petrochemical and refineries in Malaysia, Indonesia, as well as Vietnam. Um, so, uh, and on the other hand, uh, Singapore, for example, has also invested uh, as equity investors in uh, Abu Dhabi at Knox oil and gas um, pipeline deals. So yes, there is a lot of trade and uh, investment in the energy field. And this partly explains why uh, for Singapore, for example, uh, it's the only ASEAN state that has signed a free trade agreement with the GCC. Um, Dr. Wu, Professor Wu just now mentioned that there was a problem between uh, China and the GCC in terms of the free trade agreement. Uh, Singapore, unlike that, has managed to get in a bit earlier and uh, managed to sign these agreements uh, before some obstacles came about, particularly the uh, intra-Gulf rivalry, which has prevented an FTA from being signed uh, between Malaysia uh, and the GCC, despite it, uh, I think, first proposed in about 2007. So um, China is not alone in having these issues um, with uh, FTA. Now, the majority of uh, GCC's trade with ASEAN, something like more than 75%, is actually uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE's trade with three countries in ASEAN, uh, Singapore, Thailand, and Malaysia. So these are the key trade partners. Now, moving on from the energy trade, uh, I just want to suggest a third area of cooperation, and that's in terms of um, people exchange, particularly uh, remittances. Um, as most of you are probably aware, um, the four Gulf states of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, and Kuwait 
composed of the quite a large population of um, labor from uh, the ASEAN countries, uh, Indonesia and Philippines uh, in particular, and something like um, around 30 to 50 percent uh, of uh, remittances uh, um, uh, originate uh, from these uh, Gulf uh, countries into uh, the ASEAN countries. Uh, occasionally, we have reports of uh, the treatment of um, uh, domestic workers in some of the Gulf states that have uh, infuriated the public, but these have not really damaged government-to-government uh, -government relations. And of course, uh, the Gulf states uh, have improved um, their um, uh, social, uh, their, their treatment of domestic workers. So going forward, this is likely to you know, not be um, a big concern. Uh, the fourth area of uh, cooperation I would like to talk about is in the non-energy aspect, and I think this is where lots of opportunities lie. Uh, in terms of non-energy, um, the Gulf states, of course, are trying to diversify their economies, and uh, this is where I think there can be quite a lot of value add. Uh, firstly, in terms of food security. In the noughties, in the 2007 and 8, there was a lot of um, interest from the Gulf states in trying to um, uh, import more food or having land lease agreements in agricultural uh, food produce, rice, um, bananas, things like that, uh, in certain Southeast Asian countries. Um, they were not very successful in that because there was quite a lot of concern over uh, foreign ownership of land. Uh, Thailand, for example, banned foreign ownership. But uh, nevertheless, I think that there are opportunities, uh, especially not so much in land lease, but in food technology and agriculture. Uh, Singapore, for example, is land scarce. The GCC has got uh, you know, limited arable land. And I think uh, with food security now, a big agenda in many GCC countries, uh, in Qatar as well because of the blockade, uh, I think there will be opportunities uh, going forward to cooperate in this uh, non-energy field. Um, other non-energy field, I think, that has opportunities. Um, uh, already, you have uh, things like cargo handling. There have been uh, joint ventures between, uh, say, Singapore uh, Airport Terminal Holdings uh, and Oman uh, to invest in uh, uh, cargo handling uh, between the Singapore cargo and Saudi Arabia to invest in cargo terminal buildings. Afutame, the big... Uh, a Gulf group is very active in Southeast Asia with their retail outlets. Um, there are a lot of examples of Gulf purchase of real estate. So this um, is an area going forward with diversification in Saudi Arabia. Malaysian companies um, have had a lot of um, subcontract work with the Mecca Rail, for example, with the building of the Kingdom Tower and uh, of some universities. So again, this is a very uh, promising area because of the diversification efforts in the Gulf. Uh, a final diversification area, which I think is really interesting, is that of green sucrose. Uh, the Gulf states, are, uh, especially Saudi Arabia and UAE, are uh, leaders in the uptake of renewable and low carbon energy in the Gulf. Uh, Malaysia is a big center for, for Sukuk, and uh, you find Malaysian banks like Maybank um, have entered the Gulf market. And so this is where I think green Sukuk um, bond issues for renewable energy projects uh, could, uh, there could be synergy here in this region um, be between um, the GCC and for ASEAN countries. Um, so 
those are some of uh, the kind of um, areas which I see there is synergy in. Now, a final remark I would like to make uh, goes back to um, Professor Anusha's point about the composite regions of Asia. Now, um, the ASEAN countries, their trade with the Gulf countries has actually stagnated. Um, something like between 8 to 10% roughly of uh, trade uh, is uh, between the Gulf and the ASEAN countries. That's 8 to 10% of the Gulf trade with ASEAN. Um, and so this has not moved very much. But of course, the Gulf trade with areas like China or with um, India or with South Korea has actually um, you know, risen. So I think that for, you know, within uh, Asia, there is this, uh, within the composite regions of Asia, you know, there seems to be a move from the Gulf, um, you know, within looking at ASEAN and having much more interest in, say, East Asia. And so this is a kind of a, you know, maybe a kind of area which they could work at improving. Um, uh, so that's uh, some of the perspectives which, which I have shared, uh, which I would like to share with you. And I'll stop here for now. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much um, for that um, kind of overview of uh, other relations that extend beyond uh, what we have discussed. Um, maybe we can take you later on and ask you about the role of Russia in this. I know you're a specialist in this, but uh, uh, we'll now move to Dr. Mahjoub, please. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sam. That was uh, very interesting. Um, our final speaker, as I think, uh, uh, Dr. Satoru Akumaro, I, I, I hope I said your name correctly. Um, I think give you this time from Japan. Uh, uh, we look forward for your uh, contribution. The floor is of yours, please. Uh, thank you very much, Chairman. Can you hear me? Thank you very much, yes. Uh, thank you, dear participants, for listening. I'm very happy with this opportunity to speak today because today in the world, Many people will listen to the strategies of China, Korea, Russia, and ASEAN, and yet a few uh, will are uh, interested in Japanese views. Uh, however, I can tell you frankly, Japan is now learning spirits of innovations in Korea and China. Also, the economic fundamental of Japan is strong enough to overcome hardship. Japan has a focus of long-term decline due to population decrease. However, Japan's net external asset balance is more than 3,000 billion US dollars at the end of 2019, leading the world for 29 straight years. I hope I can disclose more secrets of Japan to you today. It is incredible tragedy that in such a short time, more than half a million people became victims of COVID-19. The Summer Olympic and Paralympic Games scheduled for this month in Tokyo have been postponed to July and August next summer, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. I expect that by next summer, 
Japan will be ready to host the Olympic and Paralympic Games, a gathering to ignore hope for the post-COVID-19 world. The COVID-19 pandemic caused less pain damage to Japan than many other countries thus far. The Japanese government lifted the state of emergency in June, and the situation is in Japan is stable. We are adapting to the so-called new normal life. However, in light of the deteriorating situation in some countries, it is hard to predict uh, if the International Olympic Committee will make the decision to hold the Olympic Games next summer. To give a brief summary, Japan's relations with the Gulf is characterized by interdependence, multiculturalism, constructive engagement, defensive realism, and shared values and respect for monarchy. A former Turkish prime minister stated that deepening Japan-Turkey Japan relations will contribute to the world peace, and I can apply this to the Gulf at large as well. The unfortunate reality is that Japan Gulf activities are almost all suspended at this moment. However, I can point out two major factors that will create new Japan Gulf relations in future, sooner or later. The first is Japan's grand strategy, and the second is socio-economic changes taking place in Japan. Japan has two major global strategies, the Indo-Pacific regional formation and the expansion of the free trade zone. Japanese Prime Minister Abe introduced the new concept of the Indo-Pacific in 2007. The government and the private sector have evaluated the Indian Rim region as new growing center. A large number of Japanese enterprises began their business in India after 2000. During 2013 and 15, a nationwide inquiry into industrial sector enterprises indicated that Japanese businessmen viewed India as the most promising overseas investment outlet. A new chance for investment was considered a wide open in this region. Japan is now the center of the largest free trade zone in the world. The Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP with 11 Pacific countries went into effect in December 2018. An economic partnership agreement, ETA, with the EU in February 2019, and a bilateral trade agreement with the US in January 2020. Unfortunately, the FTA negotiation with the GCC was suspended after 2007. But the expanding free trade zone will create uh, and sustain economic growth and prosperity for the participating countries. Next, I will briefly explain how Japan is overcoming the pandemic. Four types of socioeconomic structures are being built in response to COVID-19. New healthcare and medical treatment, accelerated digital economies, energy reform, and the local revitalization. In Japan, the number of confirmed cases is only less than 30,000, and most of them have recovered. The victims amount to less than 1,000. 
only 1% to 2% of total bed capacity in hospitals was occupied by COVID patients at the beginning in this month. Why Japan is successful at this level? I can point out that some contradicting effects in the democratic country to deal with the corona pandemic. A beneficial factor was that citizens felt a sense of responsibility to operate voluntarily to contain the pandemic. Citizens shared information about the crisis through media and pushed the government to accelerate responses. Citizens felt a sense of responsibility to cooperate voluntarily to avoid the three C's, closed spaces, crowded spaces, and close contact in public settings. A negative factor is that many business owners request the return of regular economic activities too quickly. The state of emergency was lifted in June, but cases of COVID-19 are again on the rise in Tokyo this month. Two new medicines are being rapidly developed by joint ventures in Japan. The government support for these medicines is not affluent as that of other countries. However, the citizens' sense of responsibility and the voluntary initiatives, including such joint ventures, is key for Japan. I will quickly review the other three types of socio-economic restructures. Regarding the accelerated digital economy, artificial intelligence AI is increasingly used by private entities to innovate their systems while maintaining social distances. Various types of robots are useful for constructing an anti-COVID workplace, and they can function with human beings in a friendly fashion to disinfect the spaces, carry elderly people to bed, support handicapped people walking, etc. Regarding the energy reform in Japan, more than 100 municipalities out of a total around 500 have successfully created a 100% renewable energy system. The Ministry of Environment concluded that it is feasible to achieve sustainable 100% renewable energy systems with biomass, solar power, wind power, geothermal energy in all Japanese local areas except several urban areas like Tokyo, Osaka, and Nagoya. Japan maintains the most advanced technology in the world for hydrogen energy, and an analysis forecasts that the hydrogen energy market will double every five years after 2020 to reach 1.6 trillion US dollars in 2050. Anti-COVID policy relieves congestion by promote, promoting ideas to diffuse population from urban areas, including capital, to local areas, such as mid-sized and small cities or rural areas. Japan promoted policy to revitalize local areas prior to the coronavirus pandemic, but there is now a new drive for it. An example is the Woburn City initiative planned by Toyota in Shizuoka Prefecture to adapt robots, 5G, AI, autonomous driving, and zero energy housing. Thus, Japan will remain an ideal partner to the Gulf uh, with two grand strategies of Indo-Pacific prosperity and expanding global free trade zone plus technological power. And 
socioeconomic restructures in four areas, new health care, digitalization of economy, energy reform, local revitalization, will create new areas of cooperation. Thank you very much for listening. That's all.